Welcome to One Symphony, a podcast that explores classical music's relevance in our modern lives. I'm conductor Devin Patrick Hughes, and I'm here to share with you stories and conversations with musicians, composers, and artistic entrepreneurs that aim to unite us into one symphonic world. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Laura Tunbridge, who is a professor of music at the University of Oxford in the UK. She's the author of books about Robert Schumann, Art Song, and most recently, Beethoven, A Life in Nine Pieces, and is currently working on a book about string quartets. It's the subject of this incredible book, just written in 2019, called Beethoven, A Life in Nine Pieces, uh, which I'm, I'm speaking with Laura today. Laura, I'm very excited to have you on One Symphony. And I just wanted to start to add to the pantheon of Beethoven scholarly works out there it is just this incredibly monumental task. And I think you accomplished it so brilliantly. Your, your book uh, and your work really humanizes the composer, which I love to do with composers. And I'm constantly trying to have conversations with the audiences about how composers were just living, breathing human beings, trying to make ends meet, trying to fall in love. And you showcase Beethoven doing this better than I've ever seen. I, I would just like to start by asking you, when did you discover the music of Beethoven? Oh, I discovered the music of Beethoven quite early. I think in the way that when you're learning to play instruments and you start playing in youth orchestras and that kind of thing, um, Beethoven was there. And I didn't really engage with him very much at that stage. He was just another composer that you play. And then as you carry on studying, he obviously began to loom larger and larger. But I should say that actually I started studying music looking at people other than Beethoven. So Mm. although he was always there, I wasn't a dedicated Beethoven scholar. And I think in some ways that helped me find ways into talking about Beethoven because I could think, well, actually here's his influence, or this is why he's been significant, or this is how people have criticized him. And that was a helpful for me to sort of not be too, I I was of course daunted, but not so much so by thinking I can only study this composer. It's like, well, I've looked at other people. I kind of understand the significance of him in relationship to others. And that really helped me find a way into writing about him. I learned about Beethoven as a kid, but I didn't really get into classical music very strongly until college. And I just remember when I was playing in orchestras and wanted to be a conductor, my conductor started with me with well, he started with late Haydn symphonies, but then Beethoven's first symphony with that long introduction, which is very short now and compared, of course, to the Seventh Symphony or 
um, even like the Mozart Prague Symphony. But that lo- I just remember how how much time I spent trying to learn how to conduct that long introduction, which starts with these false, you know, dominant chords. Um, and and I wanted to in 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 your book, I think that's really really cool because there's nine symphonies, but you also don't focus on all the symphonies, but you touch on all the symphonies throughout. Can you talk about why you chose the works that, that you chose to focus on for this book? I wanted to think about a broader range of music. I mean, there are books about the nine symphonies, and that's obviously quite a good focus. But Beethoven wrote so much music in so many different genres that I thought actually introducing some of those alongside the symphonies really helped to explain all that he achieved and was trying to do. So then I actually deliberate was thinking, well, actually, I need to get through his career. I want to introduce from maturity. I don't look at his childhood very much, but from the sort of first really big public success with the septet and then go through to violin sonata, the Kreuzer sonata. There is the third symphony in there, which for me was the piece I played at college and was really, really exciting to suddenly find that it was this kind of really thrilling music to play. And then to the operas and Mrs. Alemnis and the late quartet. So I wanted to really give a sense of the the breadth of Beethoven's output, because quite often when you do have studies of the works, they concentrate on one genre at a time. But of course, they all feed into each other. And the way that we think about Beethoven can change quite a lot, depending on whether he's working on a grand scale or a small scale. And you start with the septet, obviously, and you talk about how the septet and strangely enough, the, the Wellington's Sieg or the, the Wellington's Victory were, were his greatest commercial successes. Uh, but before the septet, there were the piano trios and the third piano trio in C minor. You talk about how he had planned on dedicating those to Haydn. And Haydn uh, basically said the public wouldn't understand them. And that kind of you know opens the door to the disparity between Haydn and his later years and the things that Beethoven could do with music that Haydn probably just never would have ever conceived. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship between Beethoven and Haydn? And of course, there's the joke, why couldn't Beethoven find his teacher? But th- th- there's a very deep uh, and sometimes love-hate relationship there. Beethoven had gone to Vienna to study with, well, first of all, to study with Mozart, and then Mozart died, and then to study with Haydn. And he was obviously indebted to him as a model, as somebody who had been tremendously successful, and someone who his patrons, moving from Bonn to Vienna, also had connections with. So Haydn was very evidently the person that Beethoven should try to emulate. But, and this is one of the things about students, isn't it, that sometimes the best students aren't the ones who take their teacher's advice, or at least don't acknowledge taking their teacher's advice, but are prepared to go beyond it and rebel a little bit. And you can see the tension there between Haydn offering advice, Beethoven disregarding it, but still being successful. And what's interesting is you do have the end of Haydn's career coinciding with the beginning of Beethoven's and that kind of tussle for supremacy. There isn't really any doubt that Haydn still at this stage rules supreme, but Beethoven not being willing to take advice from the older composer, the much more successful composer, in some ways tells us something about Beethoven's personality. And that idea that his music is too complex, that audiences won't necessarily understand it, is something that persists throughout his life. From those first piano trios through to the late quartets, people are saying, well, actually, we don't quite get this. And there is a sense that his time will come, that in the future, people will appreciate Beethoven better than others. And he had the confidence to carry on with that in mind, which I think is really telling of, in some ways, the ego of him, but also um, how willing he was to experiment and push boundaries.
And I also find as a performer, you're always reminded like Beethoven assimilated things from Haydn, you know, like, like, like jokes, like musical jokes, like that, who knows if he was thinking of Haydn when he did that, but I'm thinking of like the seventh symphony. And it goes on for seven seven bars, right? Just repeated E naturals. But I, I mean, I know there's the the famous, you know, the joke quartet, um, the false ending, I think, in the 90th symphony, the surprise symphony, the farewell symphony. Of course, there's the, the musical jokes abound. But do you think Beethoven was conscious of of taking that kind of, or was that just Beethoven's personality? <laughs> I think it's a mixture of both. I think there is a sense in which musical forms during this period are really played around with and that there is a sense in which it's not all deadly serious but can be full of humour and some of that playing by exaggeration, the repeated notes, like you said, playing with timbre and false entries. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting time because now we think of it in terms of, I don't know, sonata form and a certain kind of classicism which suggests it, it's rigid but actually there's a huge fluidity in the way that composers like Haydn and Beethoven compose. And they play with the boundaries and the expectations immediately. It's not like they're suddenly saying this is a textbook sonata form. They very rarely do that um, by the book. They're more often sort of saying, well, okay, we know that's what should happen, but actually it's more interesting if we play with it. And you can see that in Beethoven and Haydn, and it carries on through to the Romantic composers as well, where you have people like Robert Schumann having an idea of wit and sort of playing with expectations. So I think there's certainly a sense in which Beethoven is taking it from Haydn. I think it's also part of his own sense of humour. And it is a quite a neat way of showing mastery of conventions, being able to say, I, yes, I know, I understand, that's how it goes, but actually it's more interesting if I do this. And so I think you can see that repeatedly in a lot of the experimentation that he undertakes. Yeah. And when you talk about playing with expectations, this, I mean, uh, the, the rehearsal process, which I'd like to ask you about in a minute, but there's also, you know, like in the third symphony, um, which was just the, this first movement was just, I mean, the, the symphony is almost 50 minutes, which is, un, I mean, I, I don't think there was a longer symphony before that. And you hear about the false entry two bars early of the horns. And then finally you get the recapitulation. Um, or is that a false recapitulation? I haven't conducted that symphony in a while. I can't remember what 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 moment that is. But Ferdinand Ries, who um, is not the first person to get a box on the head for Beethoven, I think it was Carl Czerny for playing a wrong note as well. Um, but but you talk about that playing with expectations, and even his his assistant, his personal assistant, who would have you know been there and knowing about all all of his affairs, didn't didn't understand. So y- you mentioned that that throughout Beethoven's life, people didn't understand. But I would also like to ask you about the rehearsal process. We think of these symphonies, you know, they're, they're so well-performed today at such a high level by professional orchestras, you know, which didn't exist at Beethoven's time. You highlight and you kind of describe what it was like at some of these early rehearsals. Like, for example, when Pr- Prince Lignowski basically needed to buy pizza and beer to keep all the mu- musicians satiated and to present the to the public in a manner worthy of the symphony. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the early creation of some of these pieces? And, and I think people would be really surprised to hear that Beethoven never really got <laughs> really the performances I think that he had envisioned in his head. It was a very different culture of, actually, the culture of rehearsal wasn't really there. You might have a run through before a concert, which is more or less, more or less a run through. 
So these very complicated pieces, which are still challenging for us to perform now, despite the fact that we know them well, mm-hmm. were almost being run through. The premiere was you know, not terribly well prepared. On the other hand, because Beethoven had these really supportive patrons, some of them allowed him access to their orchestras or their string quartets to be able to rehearse to try things out. So that's what happens with the Eroica Symphony. So very famously in the room of the palace, he was given access to the Count's orchestra and could play things through, work out the balance. Yet still, as you mentioned, someone like Reese is saying, well, actually that horn entry just sounds wrong rather than necessarily an obvious joke. So you have music which is more complicated than people are used to being played through without much rehearsal. And then it's not necessarily well received or we have concerts where actually things fell apart. So this is huge concert. And in fact, that's the other thing that you have these really long concert programs. So you can have multiple symphonies and concert arias and concerti being put on the same program. And none of it is terribly well rehearsed. It's all unfamiliar music to the players and to the audience. Everybody has to have really good will to actually see the best of Beethoven. It's a very, very different culture from now where, I mean, these are canonical works and we know them well and we've heard very famous recordings of them and people practice much more and people rehearse much more. And so now it's almost incomprehensible to us that you could have a Beethoven symphony played through which might fall apart slightly. Whereas at the time, that was something that wasn't that unusual to happen. So he was really actually kind of going against the odds in terms of how people could accept what was very complicated and challenging music. And you mentioned falling apart. I think you also speak about the choral fantasy where they had to start and stop, like literally multiple times. And Beethoven was trying to, to tell the clarinets where it were. And then he got railed in the press for it. And he basically said, well, every performance, they have stops and starts. Um, and and it, it sounds like the more you I read about how you describe the accounts, it sounds more like a jam session than what we think of as an actual orchestral performance. Yeah. And I think actually improvisation, I mean, was how Beethoven started out. He was really famous and renowned as an improviser at the piano. And that's what a lot of virtuoso were known to do. They also composed, but they were making things up on the spot. And that sense of spontaneity was, I think, really vital. You can also sense it in stories like when the violin sonata that he wrote for George Bridgetower was first performed. There's an account saying, the ink was still wet on the page and he was reading, the violinist was reading over his shoulder. That suggests something which is far from, you know, here we have um, a really good sense of what this music is doing. It's really on the hoof and improvising, if not exactly a jam session, there's something quite close to it. And also what comes up when we talk about the rehearsal process is this idea of Beethoven as a conductor. To me, the, the, the more I, I, I learn about, you know, different historical accounts of not just Beethoven, but then Mendelssohn or Wagner, you know, the kind of into Nikish and then Brahms and um, giving rise to this conducting profession, it seems like Beethoven sort of started all of that. And, and I think there are different conducting schools, like some are all about the the the, the passion and the the story and the drama behind the music, and some are just about give a clear beat, right? Um, but it seems like Beethoven, you know, there were other conductors conducting simultaneously who the orchestra was told to pay attention to, but Beethoven was clearly reinvited and reinvited. He, you know, you know, regardless of how unclear he was, his gesticulations clearly informed the performance in some way. Can you talk about that? I think there's a couple of things to bear in mind. One is that the the conductor, as we think of 
conductors now didn't really exist. The standing alone on the podium and being in control of the whole orchestra wasn't necessarily what happened. It was more often run by the concertmaster or run from still continuing instruments playing from the keyboard and also keeping time was a little bit more common still. Beethoven comes in and even early in his career, he's known for his enthusiastic gestures and being more concerned with moments of interpretation than necessarily just straightforwardly keeping time. And given what we've already said about how complex these pieces were and how under-rehearsed they were, sometimes you just did need somebody to keep time. So they did have people there to take care of that. But he also, and this might have to do with losing his hearing, but might just also be a character thing, was really kind of gestural and using his body to explain what he wanted interpretatively. And I think in some ways you can see that in the way of how we think of compo- uh, conductors now, that, you know, there's what there can be conductors um, who are wildly gestural on the podium. And that tells you something about what they're feeling or what the sort of interpretation they want to get across. So they're not just timekeepers, they're actually interpreters much more obviously. You can see that perhaps being sort of derived from the iconography of Beethoven scowling at the podium with his hands in the air. I think there's ways in which is historically it's kind of interesting to think of him as a conductor because I don't think you would think of him in the kind of same way as you think of conductors now but it's there's certainly the kind of the germs of some idea of what conducting might do When we think about Beethoven, obviously there are hunting horns in his music and there's there's kind of marching music and war music. But we it's I think unless you really look at the historical record or you're familiar with like the times of um, the Napoleonic Wars, we don't really think of him as like a war composer. Uh, mo- you know, most of his um, life when he was producing most of his greatest music, uh, Vienna was essentially under siege and his his means of making a living was always under threat as all his patrons, you know, would, would flee the city or with war, as we know, there's, you know, comes difficult economic times. Can you talk about how him being a war composer, if you agree with that, affected his musical output? It affected his musical output practically. For example, when the first version of Fidelio, when it was known as Leonora, was first performed, all of his aristocratic patrons who would normally have been there and supported him fled the city because the French had arrived. And so that opera was seen, first of all, by French troops, who for a start weren't necessarily interested in serious opera, but also politically had rather different views from Beethoven and from the plot of that opera. There are also ways in which you can say that Beethoven responds to the kind of politics and post-war politics. Things like Wellington's Sieg is uh, responding to Wellington's victory and is premiered and really celebrated during the Congress of Vienna, so after Napoleon's first capture when you have all of these diplomats arriving in Vienna and there's a whole sort of ceremonial aspect to marking, hopefully, what's the end of the Napoleonic Wars. But as always with music, it works on so many different levels. And I think if you look at something like the Cello Sonata Op. 69, which was composed around the time that Vienna was invaded by Napoleon's troops, Beethoven explains to his publisher that he's been late in dealing with things and it's partly because of all the noise 
and the disturbance and the bombardment of Vienna. And so you have this very, very beautiful piece for cello. It's quite lyrical. In some ways, it's quite introverted. But actually, that's a product of him being in the besieged city. So I think there are ways in which you can have a kind of public-facing idea of how war affects music, but you can also have something which is much more personal and emotional and much more about trying to save something of one's own psyche and emotional sight um, as well. the Heiligenstadt Testament, early 1800s, uh, when, which is essentially his suicide note that he didn't share with anybody until we saw it after his death. And then he's writing like the Fourth Symphony, which is this joyous music. And then you have, you know, around 1812, The Immortal Beloved, which which I love how you talk about it. It's not as important about who it is. So many historians have tried to figure out who it is. It's more important about how it created these milestones in Beethoven's life where he kind of made some really important decisions about his art form going forward and what he could give to the world. It wasn't the um, the familial side. And maybe he did try that, I guess, a bit with Carl. But I love how you frame that, you know, immortal beloved relationship as kind of a turning point in his life. Can you talk about the differences between what Beethoven would have been experiencing and then maybe what was going on in his inner world to create such happy music. Of course, the Immortal Beloved, around that time, we have the Seventh Symphony, the the Eighth Symphony. It's always so difficult to know, isn't it, quite what's going on in a composer's mind versus the music that they create. I mean, if we could sort that out, we wouldn't write books anymore, I think. Um, (laughs) There's some sense in which, and I think this is a little bit hard to sometimes remember, is that Beethoven is on occasion writing to commission He's writing to please people. And so, yes, his music is about his feelings, but it's also about conveying things to others. And that might be one reason why you have pieces which, despite his own frame of mind, can seem particularly joyous, say. Um, And I suppose it's a flip side of that, that sometimes pieces that seem to us that we might overlay with a certain sense of tragedy aren't necessarily so. The other really interesting thing about Beethoven's output is that you can have really serious or really experimental works against things which are very commercial. And he's always, you know, wending his way, making a career, being an entrepreneur in some ways and responding to the environment around him. I think in terms of his personal relationships, there's a similar situation. He's a musician, and musicians quite often are able to move around socially much more than other members of society. So they can be mixing with high society as performers and get 
commissions from aristocratic patrons, but actually in terms of their social standing more generally, they don't necessarily work on the same level. And I think that's one of the many reasons why Beethoven never found someone as a love match in that he you know, could move in those circles and teach people and fall in love with them, the daughters, the wives of his patrons. But actually, as a musician, he was never going to be allowed to marry them. So I think it's really complicated to understand quite what his aims and aspirations were personally. And I think it always has to be understood as him looking out for himself, his own financial situation, but also his family. And I think once you get to this stage of thinking about his brothers and his nephew and how he's going to provide for them, you get a much more human sense of Beethoven working. And his music is work um, to really try and sort of keep his place in the world and to keep his family safe and well. And you mentioned Beethoven as an entrepreneur, and I think that's a really strong buzzword these days. In the classical music world, it's kind of coming out of school or as a performer or as a musicologist or as a, as a professor. I guess it's one thing. I know the professional world a little bit more well than I know the academic world, but it seems like you have to not just, like performing is not going to ha- get you a career. You have to create an organization. You have to be an entrepreneur. And I think we don't always think of these you know, former artists, whether it be Rembrandt or Shakespeare or Picasso or Beethoven as an entrepreneur. And you talk about, well, Beethoven supposedly complained that he had to be half half businessman which we don't we I would never even think of him as even a, a tenth businessman but he also thought that there should be because he was constantly having trouble you know bringing money in he also thought that there should be this international market where people put their art into it and then everybody gets kind of compensated in a way you know I wonder if that philosophy kind of goes hand in hand or or relates somehow to the French Republican aspirations or the Napoleonic aspirations where Beethoven attached himself so strongly to the hopes of Napoleon early on. Yes, you can make an argument for saying that there's a hope for a kind of democratic access to the arts and that everybody has the right to it. And I I love that idea of having some kind of depository for cultural products and people can just buy into it as they will. Having said that, he spent a lot of time trying to sell his scores to as many people as possible um, and negotiating rights across different countries and really having to make those financial arrangements and spending a lot of his time, if you read through his letters and his correspondence with people, a lot of it is about money. And I mean, that's true of pretty much all artists, really, um, and still remains so. Yeah. So the kind of fragility of the, the freelance life. And he was in some ways one of the most prominent musicians to not have a position at court or in a chapel and have that kind of steady income. So it's only when he gets annuities from patrons, which give him some kind of regular yearly income, that he's able to have some sense of not having to chase after every penny. But even so, because of the wartime situation, it's still very irregular. And he's always chasing those people to still make good on their promise of providing him with cash. So Yes, he's he has to be a hustler up to a point. He's also very good at getting people to help him. And the sort of various people who come in and help as secretaries and negotiating contracts and persuading people to support Beethoven in various ways is really astounding. For all that he has this reputation of being unworldly and cantankerous and difficult to deal with, he was obviously had some charm as well to be able to persuade people to support him in the way that they did. Yeah. 
a very um, well-known and contentious uh, subject is the metronome markings that Beethoven put in in his music in around 1816. We think of this guy, Johann Meltzel. To me, it seems that Beethoven was highly intrigued by technology, not only because he had the ear trumpets that he had to, to help his hearing from his deafness, but it seems like he was constantly in touch with interesting trinkets. And um, like, for example, when the when Wellington's Victory in the Seventh Symphony and the Eighth Symphony were premiered, there was also this panharmonicum, which was basically a, a robotic orchestra that, that produced the, all the sounds of the orchestra. And there were also concertos for mechanical trumpet written. So Metzl is someone who Beethoven had another, you know, he had falling outs because Metzl wanted to take credit for Wellington's victory. But can you talk about that relationship? And was Metzl a real inventor or was he just a charlatan? And, and, and how did that kind of inform the interpretation of Beethoven's music going forward due to the metronome markings? There were huge questions over Metzl as a character, and he was renowned for passing off other people's inventions as his own. <laughs> that said, um, he was somebody who promoted these different gadgets. And Beethoven was, it seems, quite an early adopter of things. He liked new technologies. He liked things um, to play with that opened up new worlds. You could say a same, similar thing about his music, that he was interested in trying the newest pianos in breaking up um, convention. You know, that's all in keeping with that idea of being fascinated by um, new things to mark how quickly music should go in the case of the metronome and the panharmonicon and thinking about the different ways in which music gets passed around and played and heard and the different sounds that come out mm. of things like that. And then it's interesting in terms of thinking about Beethoven's spreading reputation. So he was becoming well-known internationally. And there's a big change from having people around you who play your music, and they're the people who play your music, to publishing your music and suddenly people all over the place are playing it. And that means that if they don't know what the convention is or they haven't heard the first or second performance, then there's not necessarily something to tell you how to do things, what the, what a speed really means, what a tempo indication really means. So something like the metronome is a good way of, in some ways, trying to regulate that. Mm -hmm. So you can see it in some ways a bit like his copyright intentions mm -hmm. or trying to make sure he's got kind of rights asserted in different countries. The metronome becomes wrapped up with that idea of his spreading reputation and in some ways asserting some kind of control over how people might perform his music. But I think more than that, it's a kind of intrigue with what's the newest and latest in terms of music technologies and how it might be helpful to Beethoven. Yeah, and I can imagine because it's even even today, the metronome markings that Beethoven is going for is, is challenging. So I can imagine back in the day, I mean, that's when, when a music is challenging, orchestras slow down to get it. Um, so Beethoven would have heard that. Do you feel that those are accurate portrayals? Like some say that Beethoven's metronome could have been broken or something. But I'm curious what your interpretation is that on that. Yeah, I mean, there's been quite a lot of research into this in different ways, into how much um, you can read them as being accurate. And I think on occasion, they are things where they've been written down the wrong way, or it's the kind of should be a minimum rather than uh, quarter notes or half notes or whatever. So you do have that aspect of it, which I think needs checking and being careful with. And sometimes it's aspirational hmm. um, as yeah. well, or gives you a sense of the kind of mood of something as much as actually literally having to follow what the metronome marking is. And of course, on top of that, you have a very different performance practice. And if you listen through to old recordings and think about the degree of rubato and flexibility there is in thinking about tempi 
and also things like how well together people play. Given that that's coming out of the 19th century, you can imagine that actually there's a huge variety in terms of how people interpret these things. But as with all of the Italian tempo markings, it's like, actually, what does that mean? What does at a walking pace mean? Whose walking pace are we talking about? And we we think of performance practice playing sort of very clean, no vibrato, but also basically one tempo per movement. But in your book, you talk about how, and, and Brahms, I knew this about Brahms, that Brahms supposedly said that every phrase has its own tempo and you you either know it or you don't sort of thing. But it seems like Beethoven would ask for some forms of rubato as well, which is the idea of, of, of musical give and take, speeding up, slowing down. Yeah. And that's in keeping with what we were talking about before with the sort of spontaneity of performance and improvisation. And also that people aren't as beholden to the score as they are now. So that sense of sort of flexibility in performance was, I think, inevitable and is something that maybe is quite refreshing now to go back to again. In some ways, when we hear it, because we associate with old recordings, it seems old fashioned. And there's elements of the historically informed performance practice with, you know, much less vibrato, much more regular, much more detached, all of lighter, that might not actually be as historical as some of the recordings that we hear coming out of the 19th century tradition. So I think exploring both sides of that is really interesting. And the composers of the 19th century, Beethoven, Brahms and others, obviously did have a desire to have their music performed, had strong views about how it should be done, but there's also a sense in which performers can make it their own. And that might involve give and take in terms of tempi and rubato and portamento, sliding between notes, all of those kinds of things that have great expressive potential. This is the first time I, I had heard this in, in your book because um, we we constantly in our industry, as you probably know, we constantly struggle with um, this idea of classical music being associated with a museum or something that that is long past that is no longer relevant. And and you say that classical music was actually not in reference to the historical period, which would be, you know, something around 1750 to mid Beethoven, but it's a reference to a superior quality. Of music and lasting value. I can't remember who said that, but but I wonder if that's, I, I think that's a really interesting, I had never heard that before, but I also wonder if that idea is what kind of pushes classical music away from people, us thinking that it's like superior in some way. I think there is a huge um, conversation or a very long chat to have about actually what classical music means in that sense of if we're holding it up as being superior, and implicit to that is a sense that you can only understand it if you've had the right kind of training. 
that actually it means that people are put off even engaging with it in the first place. And that's partly to do with kind of historical ideas of how certain composers have been put into positions of prestige. But it's got a lot to do with education and sort of social aspiration and our expectations of how people should behave and what they have access to. And you can see all of that sort of coming into play during the early 19th century, partly by attitudes to music from the past. So previously, it was more common for people to play music of the present, and that was it. There was no sense of music from a couple of generations back really having a place in concert repertoires. And then when you have the whole Viennese classicism thing, you start hearing music from the past much more regularly. In some ways, that becomes the museum that you refer to, and it's held up as some kind of ideal. And increasingly, the new composers, living composers, get compared to that. So the whole kind of hierarchies that get put in place, um, in some ways, do a lot to raise the prestige of music, which is helpful for composers and artists and people who take music seriously. But it's also something that's had huge consequences for us now, where I think that danger of thinking this isn't music for everybody um, has really come strongly into play. And I think that's a real shame. And I think in some ways, we're afraid of talking about some of this music and thinking about how we're allowed personally to respond to it, because we're told that it's great. But what if you don't like it? Or what if actually you think, well, I don't quite understand it, and how do I get to know about it? All of those things, I think in some ways we shut down conversations around classical music in a really unhelpful way, when really it could be about allowing people to ask questions and have their own views of it, and hopefully find their own way into thinking about whether or not they like this music or not, whether they appreciate it or not, whether it is superior or whether it's just another kind of music alongside everything else. Speaking of, if you don't like it, we, um, we have played the Grossa Fuga or parts of it in a, in a children's concert. And we ask the kids like, how many of you like it? How many of you don't like it? Cause it, I mean, to me, even today, that sounds, there are parts of that that are incomprehensible almost. And, you know, obviously Beethoven, you know, was, was totally, in his own head at that point and just creating to almost totally unrelated to the music that was going around him. But can you maybe talk about how that late Beethoven, but particularly that piece, what was Beethoven thinking? Like what in, in your, in your, in your I wish um, I knew. expert opinion? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To be honest, I don't know um, I, if I was going to try answering that. I think there is a sense of really trying to push the boundaries of the fugue to its limits. And that's interesting within the context of the string quartet, where you do have fugal passages in previous quartets, but nothing to that extreme. And there's a certain showing off kind of compendium aspect to it. So look, I can do all these different kind of fugal contrapuntal things. You also have a way then again of looking back. So looking to the counterpoint of the 18th century or before that and thinking about how a composer in the 1820s would suddenly become interested in that earlier style of music and what that kind of archaic aspect to composing does in relationship to creating new music that, like a lot of composers since, have found that by looking to the past, they can create something new. You can see Beethoven doing that, um, creating something fresh from old devices. And I think there is a sense in which it's a bit like with the overly long or unexpectedly long third symphony, this sense of really doing things to extreme. And there is and has remained a sense in which pieces like the Grosse Fuga actually do sort of stand as a challenge, both for the performers to play it because it is tremendously difficult to do technically, but also for listeners because it's not an easy listen. I don't think it's intended to be an easy listen. There are parts of it which are really 
you know, graceful and beautiful and moving and other parts where you just think this is just really sort of hammering home a certain point. And it's really interesting that the publisher says when it's originally composed as a finale to Opus 130, that actually it doesn't fit. It's too big a final movement for that mm-hmm. quartet. So then Beethoven publishes it separately. It's relatively unusual for him to take advice like that. And then that you have a really long time before it gets picked up by quartets. In some ways, it's not till the 20th century that quartets begin to play it regularly. And then it becomes one of those pieces that people do to prove that they can. And it begins being reinserted as a finale to the Opus 130. That tells us much more about how seriously we now take Beethoven and how much better we've got at playing his music than it does about what the fugue meant when it was first composed. Yeah, and I should have added that the students in the audience, the kids, actually, almost everybody liked it. When we asked them, would you like it, you didn't like it. The orchestra, not as many liked the strings. <laughs> yes, yeah, I can think what that might be. Uh, but it is, I mean, it's not so much those questions about do you like, do you not like, are in, important. I wonder whether there's slightly different ways of kind of asking them. Or, you know, it's really helpful to be able to say you don't have to like every single piece of music that you're played. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of opening up dialogue about what you, what works for you, what doesn't, I think is really helpful rather than coming back to that sort of idea. This is great music. You must appreciate it. Actually, I find mm-hmm. personally, I find that really difficult to deal with. So mm-hmm. I can understand why students would feel that way as well. Well, I think that your book, Beethoven, A Life in Nine Pieces, if if any narrative can kind of showcase how relevant a lot of happenings and circumstances in Beethoven's life are to what we do today and why Beethoven, you don't have to like it, as you said, but this is why we're playing it kind of thing. This is why it's important and this is why it has relations in our life. Um, I think it's it's this book. And I just wanted to also, my last question would be in regards to Beethoven as a as a historical figure and an artist. I read a lot and I also think that it's not just his skill, it's not just his upbringing, um, but it's also being born in Bonn and the, the height of enlightenment and having all these ideas around him. I guess I would ask you, if Beethoven were alive today, what do you think he would be doing? What do you think he would be writing? Would he would he be writing symphonies? Would he be scoring films? You know, would he be on the street playing, you know, playing folk music? I think given how wide his output was in terms of genres when he was alive in the 19th century, he would be taking advantage of whatever he could get. I'm sure he would love writing for film. I think experimenting also with, I mean, coming back to the new technologies ideas, not just instrumental music but actually thinking about what the options are in terms of new technologies for creating music and certainly new technologies for selling music as well. I think he would have fingers and lots of pies. He would probably be suing some people too, right? <laughs> uh, maybe, yeah. <laughs> and well, well, he, well in, in, if he was portrayed in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure of being in a rock band, right? So Yes, you can see that. And also in terms of images of artists and sort of wild hair and not looking after their appearance and all of that side of things. So he fits in in many ways. He fits in. Yeah, I think he'd be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Laura, so much. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, the book is Beethoven, A Life in Nine Pieces, and it's available wherever books are sold. And the awesome thing also, if you uh, listen to books, uh, Laura narrates this, and it's a a beautiful narration. Um, It's just so cool to hear, uh, uh, you know, such an esteemed author as yourself reading it as well. Um, So I hope everybody picks it up. And thank you so much, Laura, for joining me on One Symphony today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to join me.
The book is Beethoven, A Life in Nine Pieces by Laura Tunbridge, published by Yale University Press. Thank you, Laura, for sharing your amazing passion and wealth of knowledge about Beethoven's life and music. Thank you to all the record labels and performers that made this episode possible. Musical excerpts came from Fidelio, the third sonata for cello and piano, the choral fantasy, the symphonies three and seven, and the piano trio in C minor. Performances were by Simon Rattle and the Berlin Philharmonic, Angela Denoke, John Villars, Emmanuel Axe, Yo-Yo Ma, Vladimir Ashkenazi and the Cleveland Orchestra, Andre Previn and the Royal Philharmonic, Henrik Schering, Pierre Fournier, Wilhelm Kempf, and Pavo Yervi and the Deutsche Kammerphilharmonie Bremen. And thank you to Sony Classical. You can find the book wherever you find your books and follow Laura Tunbridge on Twitter. You can check out more info about One Symphony or lend your support for the show at onesymphony.org. Thank you to our most recent supporters, Jessica, Bonnie, Carl, Warren, and Stephen. Please feel free to rate, review, or share the show on all platforms. Until next time, thank you for being a part of the music. Music